Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 110 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode... I want to talk about the power to forgive. Let's dive in. Over the last couple of episodes, we've talked about the significance of sin. And then as we're looking at the life of David, the restoration and the redemption that David experienced in God. Well, I mentioned at the end of the last episode that I wanted to expand this idea out a little bit further And look at this idea that, okay, now that we have been forgiven by God for our transgressions and sins, a lot of times we then need to extend that out to the people around us. So oftentimes I've hurt somebody or someone has hurt me, and there needs to be some reconciliation and forgiveness that takes place. Well, one of my great friends and mentors, Eric Ludi, preached a sermon years ago called The Power to Forgive. And it's just a great enunciation about God's power to forgive through us, that we are called to extend forgiveness to the people around us or to ask for forgiveness, but the power, where does the power for that come from? Now, in the message, Eric is going to talk about two different kinds of forgiveness, a human-born forgiveness and a spirit-born forgiveness. And in the midst of all this, he has a phenomenal illustration that I've actually used several times in my own preaching about this idea of manure, but I'll let you listen to it to get the full illustration. Now, I I know it's a little bit long, but I highly encourage you to listen to the full message because it is such a powerful enunciation and a reminder of what God is wanting to do in and through our lives. Well, without further ado, this is Eric Ludi's sermon called The Power to Forgive. This is a very significant message in my life. Even when I first gave the message forgiving, most of you in here, if you've been around Christianity at all, know the concept of forgiveness. It's a concept. Like faith is a concept. Like grace is a concept. Like prayer is a concept. However, do you know what forgiveness is? Because it is not just a smallish dimension of the Christian life. It is of the utmost importance. If forgiveness is lacking in your soul, did you know that you are literally hindering God from being able to be gracious with you and forgive you? 
Now, that sounds totally bizarre, but that's what it says in Scripture. And so I'm going to build a case based on Scripture, and it is going to probably be uncomfortable at some level for every single one of us in here. Because if you have any pain in your past associated with being wrongly treated, this message, in a sense, pokes at that. If it has been wrongly handled in your soul, it's amazing, but you will feel this message. If that which has offended you in the past has been properly handled, do you know that this is a triumphant, exulting message? It is, it is like a cleansing message. It reminds you of the grace of God. But if there's any pain along the way, I want you to realize that's the grace of God saying, this is where we need to work today. Some of you want to move forward with Jesus, but there's this impediment, and you're not exactly sure what it is. And you can't quite describe it, but some would describe it this way. There's a heaviness or an oppression in your soul, and you don't feel anything. You're around truth, and you esteem the truth, but you're lacking the feeling towards the truth. And of course, I would say feeling isn't what defines truth. And so you're making the right decision and saying, I'm going to follow truth even though I don't feel it. But oftentimes, the lack of feeling of what's being described as an oppression or a heaviness is actually the presence of something, not the absence of something. It's the presence of something, typically defined as bitterness or resentment. If you have not properly handled forgiveness in your life, then what you do is you leave the door open. In your life, you don't realize this. You see, at night we lock up the door and we say, you know, no bad guys allowed in here. That's what we're thinking when we're locking the door. It's not just the wind isn't allowed in, even though, yes, that happens at the Ludi house and I have to put the deadbolt on because the wind always blows open our mudroom door. However, the reason we close the door isn't to just keep out the wind, it's to keep out the bad guys, the bad things that creep around in the night that seek houses that they may devour. And so we lock our door. The same is true with our soul. We make a deliberate decision to say, no, deadbolts, nothing from the enemy is going to make its way into this life. And what we don't realize, most of us would recognize that something like lust, something like fear, anxiety is a way of unbolting that door and opening it up and saying, yeah, come on in, enemy. But very few of us understand that forgiveness, or let me say it this way, unforgiveness is one of the number one mentioned things in scripture for allowing the enemy access into our life. Don't give the enemy place in your life. Why would you let him in? And yet most of us have not been discipled and trained in what lets the enemy in. This is critical. And so let's just hit the ground running. You'll notice that this is power to forgive. One of the things you're going to notice just with this title is it's significant. You don't have the power to forgive, which is one of the reasons we struggle in this. It's like, I just don't even know that I can do this. Well... I'm here to tell you that the form of forgiveness I am going to commission your soul towards today, you cannot do. That's not to be a depressing statement. That's meant to be a statement that leads you to ask, well then, what must I do to do it? What must I do to forgive the way God has commanded me to forgive? Well, that's what the answer to this message is. That's what this message leads to. If I just gave you the answer right now, it'd steal all my thunder. So let's, I'm going to hold that. Uh, It's like one of my cards. I'm not going to let it be seen. I'm going to hold it close to my vest. Power to forgive. So let's walk through forgiveness of the human variety. This is going to sound a little strange to you. When I was talking about prayer this week with the students, I was talking about how there's human prayers or there's man prayers, and then there's God prayers. People are like, what? God prayers? 
And so one of the things I say is you need to learn how to pray God prayers. That's not weird. It's just saying that God has an agenda. He has something he wants to see accomplished on this earth. And our job is to become conduits, to say, God, what do you want to pray? And then we pray that. What does God want to be done on this earth? We pray that. We don't just pray what comes into our mind, what we brainstorm. We become a conduit of God's praying. Forgiveness. There is a human way of forgiving, which Dr. Phil teaches, by the way, and there's a God way of forgiving. Now, here's what I want to clarify. The human way of forgiving is not bad. It's not harmful. It's just not complete. It's like the human form of joy. It's not like I'm going to call it bad that someone is happy and they laugh. It's that it's not the fullness of joy which is revealed only through the Spirit of God. There is a form of forgiveness that can only be accomplished by God in and through you. And most of us have never even thought about it. Most of us struggle with forgiving even in the human variety, let alone the God variety. Okay, So where this message is going to go might be multiple layers beyond where you're at. That's good. You need to catch a vision of where God wants to take us. But let's talk about forgiveness of the human variety because many of us have probably worked in this arena. Because if I were to ask you how many of you have been hurt sometime in your life and forgiven, I have a hunch because I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. As if, I mean, it would just be a mob of hands, okay? Probably almost everyone in here at some level has offered forgiveness, has given forgiveness, and has functioned in a human sense in forgiving those that have wronged us. Okay, Some of you have specialized in not forgiving certain dimensions of your life, and then you have certain sectors of your life where you will quickly forgive. It's like, oh, absolutely, I forgive you. But then there's other grievances in your soul, whether it's parents and it's the deep wounds. I cannot believe they took advantage of me when I was a little child. And the level of grievance is there. And so you can forgive certain things, but there are other things that you refuse to even have it bring up. In fact, you're mad at me right now for having a message on this. Like, I can't believe him. I liked him until today. How dare you threaten my soul? This isn't a threat to your soul. This is an offer to set you free. Jesus Christ is ready to come into that area of pain in your life and completely renovate it. And I'm telling you what, this could change your life, and I'm not overstating that. Forgiveness of the human variety. Let's discuss it real quick. Here's my quick summary. Forgiveness of the human variety has made a choice to no longer hold the events, uh, offense against a person. No, I... It's okay, okay? I'm just going to not hold that against them anymore. It is chosen to stew about the grievance no more. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to stew about it anymore. I mean, it's just killing me, so I'm going to forgive it. It brings about a bland, non-feeling blankness of soul towards the offending person. So I want you to evaluate your forgiveness up to this point. When you are grieved or you are offended, when something is done against you, You have a natural right to bristle because justice has been violated. And you really are right in saying that. It wasn't correct for them to behave that way. Forgiveness is choosing to move beyond that somehow, some way. To not hold a judgment ceremony in your soul and denounce condemnation upon them. But it's literally to forgive them and show mercy towards them at a certain dimension And say, you know what? I'm not going to hold that against them anymore. I forgive them. Now, here's what I want you to measure in your soul. How do you feel about that person? Hmm. Well, it's a blankness is how I would describe it. Because, by the way, I've had this in my soul towards people. 
they, they harmed me. And I've had terrible things done to me. I mean, really bad things that rank up there pretty high. And most of you go, oh, wow, Eric, I guess you do understand what you're talking about. Yeah, I've had some pretty serious things done to me. And yet my response, even after forgiving, I still had a blankness, like a deadness in my soul towards them. It's like, you know what? I don't really care if they live or die. And, you know, if someone asked me, do you care if they live or die? It's like, well, I hope that God deals with them somehow, and they end up in heaven somehow. But if I run into them in heaven, we'll just sort of keep our distance. <laughs> it's a blankness. And when they're ta- the topic of them comes up, there's a little discomfort. Let's just, I don't know what to call it. You could call it nausea. But it's like, and okay, I've forgiven them. And so you have to rehearse it to yourself constantly. It's not a positive thing in your life. Let's, let's acknowledge that. And there's a deadness. There's a blankness. You don't feel anything towards them. It's not hatred, but it's also not love. It's not animosity, but it's also not kindness. It's just sort of they exist, and I try and ignore their existence. I know they're out there on earth. I'm just glad they're not here right now. That's forgiveness of a human variety. It no longer hates, but it also doesn't love. This sort of forgiveness saves us from the deadly effects of resentment and bitterness. Why? Because it locks the door. You see, what you're doing in your home when you forgive in the human variety is you're literally locking the door saying, no, this is not going to progress. This is not going to grow into anything more. You have deadness, but at least you don't have bitterness and resentment, which kills your soul. So it saves us from the deadly effects of resentment and bitterness, but finds nothing of the robust power of Christ in the forgiveness process. For after all is said and done, the fault is still remembered. I mean, think about it. You still know exactly what they did. Even though you're not holding it against them, you remember. And you remember it in vivid detail. If, any, if the topic ever comes up, you'd be ready with your argument just in case. Just in case. There's ever a need for a court of law on this point. You have your entire satchel full of evidence. Now, you're not going to hold it against them. You've set your satchel down, and you're not planning on picking it up. You're not planning on taking it to a court of law. But if they ever come back, you are ready. All right, now, as you're going through this process, there's probably a little discomfort and squirming because your forgiveness, which had been so marvelous up to this point, suddenly is being measured, and you're like, hey, what's wrong with that? Forgiveness of the human variety is perfectly fine. It is benefiting you. I have to admit, Dr. Phil would admit it too. You see, Dr. Phil would tell you that it's better to do this than to give in to bitterness and resentments. So in that regard, Dr. Phil is in alignment with Scripture. Yes, it is better to do this than to do nothing. It is better to not punch someone in the nose than to punch them in the nose. So yes, you're going to save yourself from a certain level of problem by restraining yourself from punching someone in the nose. However, just not punching someone in the nose is not the evidence of Jesus Christ. And that's the key to forgiveness. You are meant to showcase Jesus, not just to showcase a willingness to set down a grievance. Forgiveness of the spirit variety. Now what you're going to see in this is that there's going to be Something beyond what most of us have ever realized forgiveness can be. Forgiveness of the spirit variety or the Christ variety not only frees the captive from the net of resentment, but it frees their fault from the net of one's remembrance. You know how scary it is to give away your, your, patch, your, your satchel of evidence against something? That is really hard. 
and I've worked through this at a certain level because some of the things I've dealt with have potentially legal complications to them. And so I've struggled with knowing how to forget one's faults. How do you do that in such a way which doesn't make you vulnerable? How do you walk through this in such a way which truly marks the character of Christ, hallmarks it? It is a fault forgotten, removed from the equation of relationship. And Christianity does not, doesn't offer neutrality, a bland, non-feeling, blank soul response to the now forgiven soul. You know that if Jesus is forgiving in and through you, it's not just bland, it's not blank, it's not some dead response to someone. Did you, could you imagine Jesus forgave you, right? If, you have, you know, if you've come to Jesus Christ, you know that he forgave you. Did he give you a blank response in return? It's like, okay, I forgave you. But, and I'll get you to heaven, but we're going to keep a good distance apart. I, mean, I don't want to have really much to do with you. I know you exist and all, but you know what? We need a distance. What did Jesus' forgiveness accomplish? It removed the distance. It removed the barrier of partition. It brought us not just near, but uncomfortably near. I want you to realize the people in your life that have harmed you, just imagine doing for them what Jesus Christ did for you. He adopted you. Could you imagine? You know what? Um, Not only am I going to forgive you, but I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to give you all that I have, and I'm going to put it at your disposal. Who does that? He gave us warmth of manner, kindness, mercy, gentleness, grace. You see a distinction between how you've responded and how Jesus responded. You see, the gospel hinges upon the way Jesus responded to you. You don't have any hope if Jesus doesn't respond the way he did. And yet, look at how we, as humans, are responding. And this is the crux of the message. So, let me finish this. It doesn't offer neutrality, a bland, non-feeling, blank soul response to the now-forgiven soul, but rather it offers kindness, warmth of being, tender-hearted forgiveness. It offers love. The forgiven now becomes the object of love and specific prayer with an honest God-deposited desire to see them triumph in Christ Jesus. They actually become an object of prayer. They have offended you, but because in your response you have taken what the enemy meant to destroy your soul, to tempt you and allure you away from Jesus Christ into the raw materials of blessing for them. So the very offender now becomes the object of your blessing. And you seek to see them established firmly in Christ, to see them grow, to see them set free from that which is entangling their soul. By the way, most people that offend us don't even know they are. You know, there's a lot of ignorance to what harms people. It's just a social etiquette issue sometimes. You know what? Some of the things that we lug around in our souls, the other person, we're like, I'm going to teach them a lesson with my bitterness and my resentment. They're completely oblivious to it. And we're like, well, maybe if I just give them the cold shoulder, they'll figure it out. By the way, women, when you do that to your husbands, we're just as blank on the other end of that cold shoulder as we would be before it. It's just like, um, something wrong? See, that's what you're baiting. Is something wrong? You better believe it, there's something wrong. It's always better to be a little more straightforward than that. Bitterness and resentment helps nothing. Nothing. Whatever the enemy is doing to set that steak dinner in front of us, say, come on, come on, eat it. It'll make you feel so much better. It will handle this situation properly. No, it's poison. It kills you. Don't buy the enemy's lie. Cherishing the sacrifice. 
Now, this is going to seem like a strange scripture to meditate upon, but bear with me. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. So this is talking about Holy Communion. If anyone should eat this bread or drink this cup unworthily, he shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself. Whoa. Not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. If we handle the things of God in an improper fashion, did you know that it actually kills us? It actually harms us. When you receive the grace of God, which is what receiving the body and the blood of Jesus is, if you receive that grace and do not handle it worthily, it actually leads to, and I'll give you the quick list, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep, which means they died. Uh, Whoa. Now, most of us are saying, well, I don't handle communion wrong. You know what communion is? It is the impartation of God's grace to your body so that you would live and have power to live out the Christian life. It's Jesus in you. If you're calling yourself a Christian, you're dealing very closely with sacred things. You must examine how you're handling these things. And I want you to realize when God gives you grace, how are you giving that grace to others? One of the number one tests of our soul for something like this is God has given you grace. He has forgiven you. How are you giving that which he has given to you to others? If you are not doing it, did you know that there's a natural breakdown of the spiritual life? The dangers of unforgiveness. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath and do not give the devil an opportunity. My mom raised me with this concept, which is the concept of making things right with those that have offended you or those that you've offended. In the same day. Now, the sun going down isn't necessarily the key here. It's the same day is the concept. So, you know, the sun goes down. We're like, oh, no! I just gave the devil opportunity. You deal with it when you can. Right now is is the point. If you know that you've offended someone, when should you deal with it? Now. As soon as you can. Before you're going to lay a gift before the altar, go and make things right with your brother. Right now. Right now is when you deal with it, okay? And so the simple principle in our life is when we do not deal with things properly in our soul, do you know what we're doing? We're giving the devil place, or in this translation, opportunity. Well, I don't know how many of you want to give the devil opportunity in your life. None of us wants the devil lingering with any access, any opportunity in our existence. We already feel like he has plenty to already. And why is that? Well, it could have something to do with the fact that we're not living in such a way which is worthy of the body and the blood. We are not functioning in agreement with the word of God in scripture. God says, no, 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 you can't do this. And we're like, hey, I don't care. And we go barreling off and guess what? There is an allowance or a space given to the devil to harass our life. You want to know why your heart is so heavy? 
why your inner life seems darkened. You're like, I esteem truth. I want this. Well, have you ever considered the fact that you're not in agreement with truth when the way you're living on the inside? And unforgiveness is literally one of the primary things that God would say, hey, let's shine this light in there. Uh Uh-huh. We've got unforgiveness in there. You're like, I forgave them. You forgave them in the human variety. You see, this is very significant stuff. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. This is Paul speaking. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it I in the person of Christ. Listen to the reason that this forgiveness is being worked. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Well, I wish we could say the same in modern Christianity. I think we are ignorant of his devices. I don't think we understand the significance of unforgiveness. I don't think we realize that he gains advantage of us when we do not forgive things in Christ, in the person of Christ. When we attempt to handle these things in accordance with our own emotion and our own feelings on the matter, I don't like that person. What they did was wrong, and you're right. It was wrong. But what does Christ exhort you to do, command you to do in response to it? Most of you are like, I don't know. Well, that's why we need to discuss these things. We are giving the enemy advantage. We are ignorant of his devices. The principle of heavenly resistance. Now, this scripture, again, is not going to sound like it fits with this message. God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. You know what this is actually making clear? That there is something that God resists. Doesn't that sound funny? Well, God just embraces all things. No, he doesn't. There are certain things that he resists. And this scripture clarifies that the proud, he resists. And you see that in regards to the Pharisees, self-righteous, and then you see the penitent sinner. The humble, those that are bent before God and acknowledge who he is, he's able to give grace unto them. But those that are proud and arrogant and self-sufficient, he actually resists. Now, this is just a principle. I'm going to build on it. I'm going to make a statement here that I'll back up scripturally. But I want you just to recognize, first and foremost, that God does resist things. God resists the unforgiving, but gives grace unto the forgiving. And you could say, well, it actually doesn't say that, Eric. It says the proud and the humble. I'm going to back this up. I'm just giving you the same statement. That God actually shows in Scripture that if you are unforgiving in your manner, in your attitude towards others, that he actually resists your forward progression. He can't forgive you. It's literally, you're in opposition to the kingdom pattern. He is truth. In him is no darkness. In that light, when it shines in, there is no darkness. He is the way he is in every situation. You cannot try and change God. And so when you say, no, I think for me, he will be forgiving. No, not if you're living in unforgiveness. It actually is going to stymie. I always call it the hand of grace. God is reaching out to help us, but our unforgiveness shortens his arm, and he's unable to reach us. And you can say, unable? Yeah. He's unable because he cannot violate his nature and his prescribed pattern. There is a way in which God can rescue you. You must be in agreement with it. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is the sample prayer of Jesus. For if you forgive men their trespasses, listen to that. For if you forgive men their trespasses, their violations against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive 
your trespasses. Gulp. Matthew 18. Then came Peter to him and said, and this is Peter coming up to Jesus, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? It's a reasonable question. Someone has offended you. Someone has grieved you. Someone has transgressed your life. And you come to Jesus like, how many times should I forgive him? Seven is the number in the Hebrew culture of completion. And so seven? Seven times? That makes sense. And you'd expect Peter, Jesus to say, that would be very gracious of you to forgive seven times. After seven times. I mean, you don't want to aid and abet criminal behavior. So on the eighth time, you are not responsible to forgive. That would make sense. But that's not what Jesus says. Till seven times, asked Peter. Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. So what if Peter came up to him and says, okay, how many times should I forgive? Seventy times seven? Four hundred and ninety times? What would Jesus say? No, four hundred and ninety times four hundred and ninety. You getting the point? You always forgive. How has Jesus handled your soul? Could you imagine if we said, uh, Jesus, how many times will you forgive me? Seven times? Whew. We need his answer. <laughs> his very answer to Peter is critical to our own souls. And I want you to recognize it's not just critical to you. It's critical that it begins to come through you to this earth around you. Those people that are violating you, you must understand this. Until 70 times 7. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened into a certain king. Now Jesus is going to go into a story here. a little parable. And I want you to listen very closely to this parable. The context is forgiveness. And it is forgiveness that is not warranted. Forgiveness isn't warranted. It's not like the guy did a song and dance routine and then the forgiver goes, okay, that's a good enough dance. All right, I'll forgive you. You forgive because, get this, Christ forgave you. You have a motivation that is different. It's not feeling. It's not emotion. You forgive for a very specific reason. Listen to this story. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought. He's he's taking care of his books, his accounting books. And he's he's realizing one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. That's like a Bill Gates fortune. It is a massive amount of money that none of us could ever save up and pay back. Most of us, if we get in debt $1,000, spend for 20 years trying to get on top of it and pay it back. It's hard to not only deal with daily life needs, but then to pay back debts. A fortune is owed. There is no way. I don't know why this servant got so much of a credit line, but he did. And Jesus is making a very specific point here. Everyone here in this story would have gone, 10,000 talents? Yeah, 10,000 talents. It's the unpayable debt. So a man which owed him 10,000 talents, but for as much as he had not to pay, that's an understatement, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. All right, now that sounds like us. God, I know I've violated, but I'm going to fall down and I'm just going to say, God, I'm going to make it right. I'll do whatever I can to live the life I'm supposed to live. Can we? Can we pay back this debt? No. It's the unpayable debt, which leads to this very critical moment in the story. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Whoa. Did I hear this story correctly? 10,000 talents was just cleared. 
10,000 talents was cleared. What a weight lifted off this guy. You have your $1,000 debt that's been crushing you. Imagine that. Bill Gates' fortune, unless you pay it, you're literally going to be thrown into prison. Your wife and children suffer for the rest of your life. You have no hope. But your king has shown mercy and compassion. And he has loosed you and cleared that debt. But the same servant, this is a very horrifying turn in the story. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. Pennies! Pennies! He owes him diddly squat. And the same servant that was just cleared the 10,000 talents goes out, finds someone who owes him pennies. And look what he does. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, and went and cast him into prison, till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, I owe thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desired me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth. It's never good when uh, the Lord gets wroth. You'll notice that in scripture. Just study wroth. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. In other words, he will always be with the tormentors. Because how in the world can you be with the tormentors and pay off all that you owe? You'll always owe it. This is a bad turn. Okay, I know it sounds like a depressing story. But why is the story given? I didn't give it. Jesus gave it. Why did he give it? So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Is this serious stuff, or are we like, oh, we're New, Christian, New Testament Christianity. These things don't apply to us. If you're New Testament Christianity, this is what you understand. You understand that forgiveness is the operation, the natural outflow. If you truly understand the work of the cross, what do you do? You give the work of the cross in and through your life. You've been forgiven, so what do you do? You forgive. That's the operation of our soul. That's just what we do. We forgive for a living. We're going to be hounded by this world. We're going to be hated. We're going to be persecuted. What do we do for a living? We forgive. If you don't learn how to forgive, your soul will go rotten. Don't expect to grow in Christianity unless you learn this all-important attribute. The world hits you, and you give them love in return. You give them forgiveness. You give them mercy. This is how the Christian functions. Mark 11, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he shall sayeth shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. What does that have to do with anything? Mountains being thrown into the midst of the sea. Listen to the context. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that thou receive them and you shall have them. And when you stand praying... Forgive. What a strange context for this. We're talking about believing, faith. And if you truly believe, you can tell a mountain to be picked up and thrown into the midst of a sea. Don't you recognize your position? But when you stand praying, forgive. 
to recognize that this is how we function. This is not an attribute for just a few of us that are extra noble. This is the definition of how a Christian soul functions. If you have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Have you heard it enough? Have you heard it? That's what the Bible says. It says that God is unable, he is disabled from being able to offer the grace that is only available to the humble when you exert unforgiveness, when you allow that to remain and you do not function in your soul at the level that you should be. Do you not realize that Jesus came and cleared your debt, loosed you from your debt of 10,000 talents? Your unpayable debt, you were going to be with the tormentors until you could pay it all back, which would be forever. And Jesus has come and shown mercy to your soul and freed you. What is the natural response? We know that the wicked servant didn't handle it correctly. What was it, a hundred pence? You know what is, I I know that the grievances and the offenses against your soul don't feel like a hundred pence. It was like a 10,000 talent offense, Eric. You don't understand. Jesus makes it very clear. I don't care if they've done that same offense against you seven times. You forgive them and they come right back and strike you on the cheek. What do you do? You forgive. What if they do it again? Are you aiding and abetting their criminal behavior? Now, I'm not saying you stand in the way of their fist. You know, in other words, someone's swinging right here and every time you come stand right here, they punch you. It doesn't mean you have to go right there and so they punch you again. There is things known as wisdom. You can walk on the other side of the road, potentially. At the same time, Jesus might lead you up to come right there and say, I just need to say it again. Jesus loves you. What was David Wilkerson's line? Though you cut me into a thousand pieces, every piece will cry out, I love you. Are we willing to be such an example that no matter how many pieces we're cut up into, every piece cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The grand meadows of God's grace. And I'm going to give you a little metaphor. I've never used this metaphor before, so it could go bad. But I'm going to still try it, okay? I've been pondering it for quite some time, trying to deal with my own soul on these issues and stay sharp. Because this is it's a hard issue. I was not discipled in forgiveness. And so as a result, with all of the pains and the heartaches and the backstabbings I've received in Christianity in my position, I have to know how to rightly handle these things. And so I've tried to wrap my mind around what this is and how it works biblically. The grand meadows of God's grace. Imagine your soul that it was intended to be this open meadow full of flowers. And it's just, it has a fragrance to it. And it's the place in which you meet your king. And it's a true romance. It really is. But it's beautiful. It's fragrant. It's life-giving. Sunshine. It's not 102 degrees like it has been in Colorado. It's always 72 and sunny. It's lovely. It's beautiful. That's the way the soul is supposed to be. It's marked by peace. No enemy encroachment. You don't fear the wolf pack when you're there. Your soul is protected and guarded. It is a place of retreat and sanctuary, and you can get to know your God there. And he walks with you in the cool of the day in this meadow. So that's, that's God's, grand, God's grand meadow of God's grace. There's no walls, no barriers, no landmines. You're not taking a walk with your God in the... <laughs> Some terrible thing happens. It is a sanctuary set apart, completely wholly guarded by the king of kings. The incident. Mm -hmm. 
There's always an incident. It's a crime. The crime is committed. It's a fault. It's a mistake, a stabbing, an accusation, an insensitivity, a hit, a forfeiture of trust, a lie, a robbery, a violation, an abuse. A something occurs. You were minding your own business. You're not the one that did the something. Someone else did it. And this is the great bait for your soul. How you handle this something is what defines the health of your meadow. You see, I'm going to liken this something to someone taking in a truck, a big, huge dump truck full of manure. I know it's not the most attractive mental picture, but I want you to realize it's a very important, it's unattractive on purpose, okay? I'm not trying to pick something that could go either way. And some of you are like, you know, I really love manure. You know, you, some, my, my mom likes the smell of cattle yards, okay? She grew up in Idaho around it. I don't like it. However, I have a hunch my mom still doesn't want manure on her shoe, okay? Manure doesn't belong on us, near us. It's something that is disgusting, okay? It's meant to be buried or hidden somewhere. This fault or this mistake, this incident, someone else's junk, the manure, The disgusting inner junk of another person is deposited on your ground. You didn't ask for it. It's just there, a big truckload of it. And I've used this illustration for many years where I'm minding my own business. I open my front door. I step out and step into someone else's manure pile that they carted up to my porch and set there. Now I have it all over my front porch and all over my boot. Great. It's not mine. I didn't put it there. It's not my responsibility, but it is my responsibility how I handle it from this moment forward. And how I handle it defines either Christianity coming to this earth and the revelation of Jesus Christ in and through me, or the calcification of my soul and everything begins to go dark. This is unfair. They shouldn't have put it there. It's unjust. Technically speaking, you're right. It is unjust. It is not right. They're responsible before God for their actions. But you were responsible before God to be a flow-through channel of Jesus Christ. That's your job. Not to bring justice on that person. Not eye for an eye. You stick your manure on their front porch. You must respond as Jesus would respond in this situation. This is critical. The manure. The yellow tape. Now here's... It's a crime scene. You have yellow tape and you stretch it out. See, there's this pile of ground which was covered with lovely wildflowers. It might have even been one of your favorite pieces of ground. And they have literally desecrated it. They stuck manure right there in the middle of it and then took their truck and zoomed off. They left it on your territory. How dare they? Watch your soul very carefully. What we do is we cordon it off. It says the crime scenario is cordoned off for special attention. First of all, I want you to realize there's nothing wrong with the crime scene tape and investigation because you have to figure out what's going on. You have to get perspective. If you're a, if you're a parent and your child you know, dumps a little manure on your property, guess what? You still have to know what happened. You have to know how to assess it properly to make sure you discipline the right child. In other words, there's a crime. Something has happened. It needs to be properly addressed With discipline, with justice, yes, these things aren't foreign to God, but you need to watch your soul. And so the yellow tape is the cordoning off of the crime scene for special attention. The evidence is evaluated, the act investigated, the manure pile perused. You're sort of walking around it going, great. Watch your soul. You see, most of us aren't leaping for joy as we're perusing our manure pile. 
We're not saying, what a wonderful opportunity this is going to be. Great. Yes. Yes. What we're doing is we're beginning to give in to the wrong things. This is when your soul is being evaluated right here. The decisive moments is when you're perusing the manure pile. Now, I have my pronunciation for our Greek word for the day, afiami. It means to let go, to let alone, to let be, to leave, to, to go away, leaving something behind. It's actually the word for forgiveness, to let go of it. Now, here you have a grievance. Someone has literally desecrated the property that was covered with nice, fragrant wildflowers with a heap of manure. You didn't ask for it. It's their inner junk stuck on your life. And you have to deal with it. That's what's funny. However, how you deal with it defines the health of your soul. If you you catch the vision for this, that pile of manure will be something you begin to rejoice over. I know it sounds funny, but you will. You just have to follow me through this. Afiame, to let go, to let alone. There's something you're wanting to do with this manure pile, and I'm going to tell you what it is. There's something that you naturally, instinctively desire to do with this manure pile. And if you do it, it will kill your soul. And it won't just kill you. It'll, you'll end up becoming a source of darkness for the world around you. You have to be very watchful how your soul handles this. The manure shrine of grievance. What we do is we take that which that person that has offended us has deposited, and we build a shrine there. And I'm going to call it the manure shrine of grievance. I know this is disgusting. It's meant to be at a certain level. However, I'm not trying to just make you grossed out. I want you to recognize that we take the junk that is dumped on our life and we continue to create junk with it as opposed to rightly handling it. The territory, remember this little piece of ground where they dumped the manure? That territory has been cordoned off and now it becomes a building property for you. The territory is officially declared set apart for mourning and woe. Oh, woe is me. Self-pity, just rife. Can you believe they did this? Whoa. The place of the crime is officially logged into the court record of the soul as hurt and wounded property. Hurt. Wounded. Okay, we're falling for it. This is what the enemy does. And he's walking us through it step by step. Like a legal process. Takes us by the hand. Says, you want to handle this my way? Well, yeah, I need help. And we say, first, give in to self-pity. We're like, oh, woe is me. Wounded and hurt property. I'm wounded. I have a deep wound. A medical facility is instantly established to repair the soil. That's what it's called, a medical facility. See, you're being duped. It's not a medical facility. And thusly, using the manure provided, a structure is fashioned to cover the violated ground, to capture the smell of the crime, to carefully chronicle all evidence, to enable rumination on the hurt, and to premeditate revenge upon the perpetrator. And so we shape a little hut. It's a manure hut. It's a shrine for what happened there. There was a crime that took place here, and we will not forget it. And so what do we do? With the very junk that was deposited there, we craft a hut, and we spend time in that hut catching the smell of it once again and rekindling our anger, our frustration, and our hurts, and we ruminate upon it. And what are we doing? We're actually determining our retaliation against this behavior 
It's extremely deadening to the soul, but we don't realize what we're doing. The windowless factory of bitterness. Now, what we have is a manure hut. Remember that territory? It was really beautiful. It was full of wildflowers, and it smelled all nice, and birds would chirp through there. You would run through there, skipping through the meadows. Some of the guys in here are like, I do not run like that. That was sort of a girly run. I, I don't run like that either, just so you know. The windowless, windowless factory of bitterness. You have a little hut. No windows. So what's happening to this territory? It's dying. No light, no fresh air, no air breeze is going through. It's dying, and that's exactly what the enemy's intent was. Your nice territory is now dying because of your little hut. In this manure hut, all light is cut off so that the pain and hurt of the incident can be fully nursed. That's what the enemy is saying. You need to nurse this. Oh, You see, we fall for this all the time. Woe is me. People come up and give us hugs. And they comfort us in our wound, as opposed to recognizing that this very incident is the opportunity for grace. But when we mishandle these things in the church of Jesus Christ, I'm not saying there isn't place for compassion and arms around shoulders. There are. But we need to recognize we do not want to aid and abet the formation of a manure hut in anyone's life. By the way, some of us will come and take deposits of other people's manure piles and take a second-party offense and build a manure hut on our property. And sit in it and stew about other people's manure piles. And how horrible it was that they dumped it on my daughter's or son's property. Second party offense. Manure huts. In this manure hut, all light is cut off so that the pain and hurt of the incident can be fully nursed. All light, rain, cleansing breezes, flowery fragrances, and outside perspective are removed in order to maintain a clear and undistracted focus on the offense. The ground inside the shrine quickly dies, and the windowless, dark, depressing environment allows for the fast growth of a new sort of flower. Well, maybe it's not a flower. It's more a prickly bush, a spreading poisonous vine sort of thing. It's called bitterness. And the darkened manure shrine is the perfect place for this bush, this vine to spread. And it grows, offering a strange and addicting comfort to the shrine territory. It's hard to explain how this works, but bitterness has an addictive quality to it. We don't like it at a certain level, and we wouldn't mind it not being there, but it's addicting. And we get a certain comfort from it. We feel like we're working. We feel like we're doing something. And so we nurse this bush. This bush can only grow in a manure hut. It's the only place bitterness and resentment can grow. And so if you build this hut, and you mishandle that grievance, this root of this bush, this vine, This poisonous vine has a location in which to thrive because it thrives in darkness. It can't thrive in the light. The bitter meadow. So now we have a hut, right, which we spend time in. You know, it doesn't mean we spend all our time in it, but we'll visit it probably daily, sit around, and if certain people bring up things, we'll just go and... I don't know, Hudson, if you remember when you were uh, three, you used to love binkies. And uh, if he was ever having a tough time, he would go up to his room. And he wasn't allowed to take his binkies out of his, his room, but he had a little binky jar. And so he'd go up and sit in his chair and nurse his binky. That's sort of what we do. When we are reminded of things, when pains strike our life, what do we do? We go into our hut and we stick a little binky in our mouth. And we nurse it. We stew there. Now, what's happening to our meadow? Remember that, other, that outside meadow where you used to run free and... There I am running again like that. (laughs) Skip? I don't know how to skip, so I'm not exactly sure how to give that sense of freedom, but it does seem a little girly the way I'm doing it. (laughs) 
We used to have such freedom and walk with our Lord in the cool of the day and there was such intimacy. What has happened? I'll tell you what's happened. You built a manure hut out of the grievance. And it has killed that territory, but not just that territory. A root of bitterness must have a hut to grow in. And if it does, it doesn't stay in the hut. It spreads like a vine through your entire meadow. It, near, it merely must have a hut in which to plant its root. Because it must, its root must be protected by darkness and grievance. And if it has unforgiveness as its shelter, guess what? It'll spread throughout the entire meadow. Bitterness is a spreading plant. It is never satisfied with what ground it has. It is always lusting for more property in the meadow. But for bitterness to grow and spread, it must have its root protected in a manure shrine. If it has a protected root, then it can spread from the manure hut outward into the rest of the meadow. And since bitterness is a bully plant, meaning it doesn't share its ground with any other, it chokes out all plant life everywhere it spreads. So soon, the entire meadow will be overcome with a strange, black, prickly, poisonous spreading bush. Some of you, this is your issue. This is just it. You have maintained what you thought was a just cause of grievance against another, and as a result, you have given a habitat in which the enemy could have place in your life. And if the enemy gets place, he doesn't stay in one place. He's a bully plant. And he will begin to spread from the place that you legally offered him. And you could say, but I didn't start this. Someone else did. You made a choice of what to do with the raw materials that they dumped on you. They did something wrong. And that's a fact. And I do not want to excuse them for anything they did. But we're not talking about them. We're talking about us in here. How we respond is our responsibility. How someone else behaves is not our issue. We can pray for them. But we are responsible for our response. We must choose to be Christ. Hebrews 12 says, Looking diligently lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The actual word for even trouble you is a poisonous spreading branch. Isn't that interesting? It's like, lest it spread and bring its poison elsewhere. Don't let this root of bitterness in. When you have unforgiveness, you unlock the door and you leave it open for bitterness and resentment to stroll in. And bitterness and resentment will cripple you. It's like a root structure that goes down into the depths of your being and robs it of life. It's poison. How in the world do you get rid of it then? You forgive. If you forgive, you not only close the door, but you remove the manure hut, which exposes that bitter root to light, to rain, to the breezes of the meadow. And as a result... In the authority that you have in Jesus Christ, you can literally tell that root to be uprooted and thrown out of your existence. And it has no legal position anymore. But it starts with making a decision of the soul to agree with God's word on the matter. And that is, I must forgive. Human forgiveness. We call it dead ground. Okay, now this is one step better than the mud hut. Remember how I said there's forgiveness of a human variety that even Dr. Phil would agree with? Well, this is sort of what most of us live with. Dead ground. All the manure is left in a pile untouched. So you have this big dump truck 
it launches its mess on your property. So what you do is you choose to leave it there. It's like, you know what? I'm not going to make an issue out of this. And so you spend your life walking around that pile of manure. Now, every time you walk around it, what are you thinking of? All right, I'm going to choose not to meditate upon this, but boy, does that stink. I can't believe it. No, no, I forgive them. You see, but that ground, think about that territory in your soul. It's a constant reminder of pain in the past. Constant. It doesn't mean you're not rightly handling it. At least you're not meditating upon it, building it into a manure hut and giving a root of bitterness a place to branch out from. Hey, this is a better model. It is deliberately not utilized. You're not using the manure. You're not going to do that. You're deliberately choosing a better course. So it is passed over and left on the spot. Instead of constructing a manure shrine of grievance, the manure is left in a pile in that location. The pile hardens and petrifies. The yellow tape is taken down. The event purposely moved past and attempted to be forgotten. I use the word attempted to be forgotten. But every time you're taking a stroll, guess what you see? Mm -hmm. That used to be covered with some really beautiful ground. You ever had that, that remembrance of a past relationship you had which was fond? You were close to that person. And then every time you get close to that, it's just like, oh. And it's hurtful. And it pains you. And I'm not saying it shouldn't. Something's wrong. You see, that is supposed to grow wildflowers. There's supposed to be life here, but there's death. And it's sad. So the manure is left in a pile. That location, pile, that, that location in the pile hardens and petrifies. The yellow tape is taken down. The event purposely moved past and attempted to be forgotten. But the crime spot will never grow with beauty again. There isn't a shrine, but there also isn't a meadow. It's dead ground. Ground avoided. It's not ground that breeds bitterness and resentment, but it also doesn't breed love, affection, and tender-hearted intimacy. It's simply dead, an unpleasant and unfortunate piece of ground within an otherwise lovely meadow. I'd say if most of us were going to be examined right now and our meadow was just sort of laid and we could take a tour through everyone's meadow, we'd find some patches of dead ground. And I'm not going to try and make you just feel bad about that. I want to give you a different way of looking at it. I believe that God intends us to have that meadow untouched, and beautiful, and full of flowers, even when we are literally being hounded on every side by demonic hosts and men and women possessed literally by the devil who are trying to destroy us. And our meadow is untouched. How can that work? Divine forgiveness. Let's call it a prayer garden. What the enemy touched with his pile of manure, when the Christian handles it the right way, It actually takes that territory that has been defiled and tainted and turns it into something sacred. It actually beautifies that territory even more than the rest of the meadow. Follow me. Wounded territory becomes precious when God is allowed to handle grievance his way. For God specially marks off that part of the meadow as set apart for his special grace. Anytime you get a pile of manure, you know what that automatically means? God says, oh, we have a territory for special grace, and you get excited. Oh, good. I love it when God moves and gives special grace to my meadow. It's even more beautiful. It's even more fragrant. Yes. Oh, this is going to be fun to watch. How's God going to work through this? I remember his previous little sacred territories. They were amazing. But just wait. This one's going to be good because that's a really big pile of manure. (laughs) For God specially marks off that part of the meadow as set apart for his special grace. And thusly, he turns that spot into a sacred garden. He does this by taking what the enemy meant for evil and turning it to good. So, what does he do? He tills 
the manure into that plot of land. He builds a quaint bench, a water feature, and inscribes a memorial stone with words like, Here we remember the great forgiveness of our God, that it is he that has the power to forgive sins. And on the bench, there's a special bronze plate that reads, May God bless those who harm me, and may I become God's instrument of grace and mercy to see them healed and to see them strong in Christ. The flowers in such a garden are the most beautiful in the entire meadow. Well, they got extra fertilization. They got a whole dump truck load full of manure. And you're like, oh, that's going to make this such a beautiful, lush spot. Thank you. I can't buy that manure. I don't even have the money in the bank. That is a lot of good manure. Some of you that are like farmers are thinking, can I have a dump truck full? This is good stuff. This is useful for the growth of life in this property. So the flowers in such a garden are the most beautiful in the entire meadow. They grow more robust and bloom year-round with a fragrance that blesses all who come near that precious and now dearly loved plot of land. You see, God has taken and transformed what otherwise could have been a dead spot in your territory and turned it into a life spot. This is God at work. We can't do this. God does it. The manure is no longer seen when looking upon this property, but rather the glories of God's redemptive beauty. So could you imagine you're walking through a meadow and you see a really lush spot. It's like a garden, it's a bench and a water feature. You're like, what, what's that over there? Well, at one point in time, that's where the enemy tried to attack me, but God turned it to good. What, what's that over there? They stand out in your life. They become the testimonies and the witness of what God can do in a man and woman. If you're not attacked, you don't get the manure. As a result, you're, you have a nice meadow. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish your meadow. I'm saying our meadows can be so much more beautiful. I don't know exactly how to describe this, but I would say the Christian life fully yielded becomes a meadow wholly and completely covered with manure that is constantly being tilled in and turned into a sacred reflection of God's grace. In fact, if I was going to enunciate the life of Jesus, it was a life completely, I mean, the manure of this world completely dumped on him. And what grew out three days later? Life. Resurrection life. It was tilled in. And literally, that which was meant to destroy was eaten up. And now when we look at Jesus, we don't see sin. We see life, abundant and full of glory. Transforming the enemy's evil. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, the, are called according to his purpose. Remember Joseph making this statement, but as for you, when his brothers had sold him into slavery, he's talking to his brothers, he says, but as for you, you meant evil against me. You dumped manure on my land. But God meant that manure for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God made it into a prayer garden. What do you do in a prayer garden? You pray. Who are you praying for in that prayer garden? How about the person that dumped the manure there in the first place? You know what we turn into? We turn into houses of prayer for those that violate us, for those that hinder us. We actually learn to gain God's heart for them. And so if someone hurts us, you know what we ask God to do? To give us his burden for them, as opposed to his blankness, his burden, his love for them, and that we seek their blessing, not just a blankness, not just the judgment on their life, but that they would be saved from judgment, that we ask God to make us an instrument of blessing unto their life. I know that's a little scary. Some of you, you see, all of us have 
real-life circumstances that we're dealing with, real-life relationships. In theory, you agree with everything I'm saying, and you can't argue it. But in real-life practicality, this one hurts because some of you have manure huts, and they have to go. Some of you have roots of bitterness that have spread through your meadow, and there's a darkness in your soul, and now God's pinpointing and saying, that's it. And you need to repent of your unforgiveness. Some of you just have dead spots. It's like one of those lawns that used to look so nice. It just has these spots that are dead, you know, in a drought, and, you know, some bug got in over here. It's just this dead spot. I love green lawns. I love golf course lawns. I don't like it when I see a dead spot. I have like a spot off to my left when I'm pulling in the driveway that's a little dead right now. And it's like, God, oh, come on. I don't like dead spots. I don't want dead spots in my meadow, just some petrified manure pile. That's not a testimony of God's grace. I don't want any territory that I have to avoid. I want to be able to open my life up and say, Jesus, inspect me. Come walk with me through my meadow without any shame as I'm walking. And he can inspect every corner and say, do you like this little prayer garden that I set up for you? Thank you. Thank you for this prayer garden. Well, let's sit down, Eric, and let's pray here. Who should we pray for here? Well, I guess the one who supplied us all the manure would be a good person to bless. I mean, look how beautiful this is as a result. You turn into a house of prayer for all perpetrators, for all offenders of the gospel. You're a house of prayer to bring life where death was brought to you. You're like Jesus. That's what he did. The manure piled on. Father, forgive them. Stephen, they're piling manure on him. Father, forgive them. This is the act of the soul that brings life. Forgiveness. There's three saving reasons for employing it. Number one, Godward. It makes way for the human life to enjoy space, God's ready forgiveness. God forgives us only to the degree that we forgive others. So this affects your relationship with God. It affects your closeness with God. It affects your intimacy with God. And so when you properly forgive, you are opening up a channel of closeness and intimacy with Almighty God. It's a good thing. Manward, it frees the soul from both guilt, Godward, and bitterness and resentment. Manward, you know that this actually changes your relationships with others? It doesn't just change your relationship with God, it changes your relationship with other people. You know what? I don't like that blankness of soul. And I, I have a hunch that you probably don't like it either. It's awkward, too. You ever been around someone that has deeply hurt you and it's that awkward moment where you sort of go up on your toes and bounce around a little and gulp and, you know, get a cold sweat? It's like, hi, uh, uh, how's the weather? It's awkward. You run into them in King Supers or something. Boom. Uh, hey, uh, yeah, cereal over here. I need to really get going here. I have an important engagement. I don't like it either. Okay, social awkwardness is a natural result of these things. And there's a vulnerability in relationships. You don't know that you feel like they're talking about you over there. And you, it's extra room for resentment then. It's extra room for, I know that they're talking about me. The enemy uses these things. When you're freed from them, you're no longer spending your sacred time that is here to serve Jesus in his glory on ridiculousness. You can just love that person. You run into them, it's like, oh. It's great to see you. Now, they might not be excited to see you, but you could be very excited to see them. You see, you've been sitting in your prayer garden praying for them. And you've been excited. You've even been praying for opportunity to witness to them the love of Jesus, that you are gracious in response. And it will shock someone who has literally dumped a truckload of manure on your property to see you 
gracious towards them. Well, yeah, that's rather shocking. And that's what you have the privilege of doing. Satan word. It evicts him from his place that unforgiveness lends him. His place from which he can effectively undermine and rot the human soul. We are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. We are not going to give him any advantage in our souls. We do not give him opportunity. We do not give him place. Why would we? It's a good question. We do it all the time. I say let's understand how the battle works. You have a 10,000 talent debt that was forgiven you. What should you do in response? I don't care if it's 100 pence, you forgive it. I don't care if it's a million pence, you forgive it. I don't care if it's 10 trillion pence, Jesus Christ forgave you. You be an instrument of forgiveness. So whoever you may have a grievance against, whoever owes you something right now, they should, they des- you deserve to have them come up to you and say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? They should do that. But you do not make your forgiveness conditional upon their behavior. Your forgiveness is based on his behavior. He forgave you. It mandates to the soul that you forgive them. Even if when you do, they spit upon your face and bring a fresh truckload of manure and dump it right next to the other one. You rejoice. Double fertilization bigger garden. These gardens are special. And they become the special points, the special places in your meadow. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's a command, by the way. Let me read it again. And be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Now, this is a key point I want to just sort of jump on here, and we're going to bring it to a close. This is Paul speaking. Forgave I it, or I forgave it, would be an easier way for us to understand it. I forgave it in the person of Christ. Where was Paul able to forgive? It's in a location. It's in a very specific space, place, and it's in Christ Jesus. It's sort of like me saying, I was able to fly... From Denver to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, in the plane. That's how I did it. You're like, how did you fly? How did you do that, Eric? I've tried to flap my arms and I haven't been able to get any air. I can't quite figure out. How did you do that? Well, I flew in the plane. That's how I did it. How are you going to fly in this arena of your life? Because what I'm commissioning you towards to do, you cannot do. And some of you have felt that, I just can't forgive, I can't let go. Here's the secret. You forgive it in the person of Christ. The power to forgive is in Christ. Remember I said I was holding a card close to my vest, and I didn't want to give it until the very end? That I'm commissioning you to do something that is actually impossible to do. It's impossible to fly outside of a plane, or something that defeats the law of aerodynamics. It is also impossible to forgive with divine forgiveness and to become a channel through which the mercies, the kindnesses can be wrought upon those that have offended you. Okay, That's why you've been struggling with this. This is actually impossible for the soul. You can give human forgiveness, but you can't give God forgiveness. You can give human love, but you can't give God love. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God does. But... 
If you get into Christ position, you stand in Christ and you say, you know what? You get in Christ, you get forgiveness of your sins. Most of you know that. Well, you know what you get in Christ? Look at this. In him, we have the forgiveness of sins. Where do your sins, where are your sins forgiven? In Christ. He is your clothing. We've used this illustration at Ellerslie quite a bit, but the lake house is the building next door, and it's nice and temperature controlled, you know, 70 degrees always. If you're outside in the middle of a sleet storm or a snowstorm and the wind is gusting against you, where is the protection from the sleet? It's in the lake house. You could be near the lake house. You could stand on top of the roof, you know, and say, I'm on the roof. I'm actually touching it. It's being inside of it that you gain the merits of the work of the construction of the lake house. It has a roof to cover you. It has temperature-controlled environment to give you the right temperature as opposed to this blistering cold outside. You get into the lake house, and all the merits and the virtues of the lake house are bequeathed to you simply by being in it. Do you need to build the lake house yourself? No, it's already built. You come in to share in it. You believe that the lake house has what you need. And someone says, the door's open for you. Enter. Well, how stupid would it be to remain outside after you've been invited in? Do you believe the lake house has what you need to be warm? I do. Then open the door and walk in. It's unlocked for you. And that's the action of Christianity. We believe And we go through a door trusting that our God has what we need. And guess what? When we come in, the wind stops. I mean, it's really amazing. That which was blowing against us suddenly ceases. And we have the merits of that lake house. You know what's included in the house of Jesus? He's a house. And when we enter into Jesus, there's all sorts of things that are described. You have atonement for your sin. It's literally a just and satisfying offering for your sin. You have a cleansing and a washing from your sin. You have a remission of sins. You have a purging of your very conscience, so no longer do you need to have guilt. It's all in the house. I want to focus on one very specific thing. In him, we have the forgiveness of sins. When you go into the house, you have forgiveness of your sins. But I want you to also look at this in a new way. You have the forgiveness of sins. I know that didn't sound any different than the first time I said it. But I want you to think about the person that's dumping manure on your property. You have in Christ the power, the ability to forgive sins. You have, you're not the one that forgives them, but you have in Christ that power to say, I forgive. I rejoice. I take this manure and I will till it in the grace of God to see it grow up unto a greater strength in my meadow. You have Christ's attitude. You have Christ's grace. You have Christ's strength to respond as Christ would respond. It's in the house. It's there. For David, I in the person of Christ. In Christ, you have all you need to be able to forgive, not just receive forgiveness, because that's where we receive it too. If you've been dumping manure on someone else's property, where do you need to go? You need to go to them, yes, and seek forgiveness, but you also need to get into Christ and have him forgive you for being a dumper of manure. You have forgiveness of sins in him, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. Where, where's the forgiveness of sins? It's in Christ. That's where it is. That's where it's found. So where do you get forgiven? In Christ. And where is it that you will find the power to forgive others? 
in Christ. That's where you go. So if you're struggling to forgive, first of all, if you're struggling to be forgiven, I have a great uh, thought. Get in the house of Christ. Get in Christ. Forgiveness is there. Take it. But if you're struggling to offer forgiveness, if you're struggling in your own strength, in your own power, to be able to give that which seems impossible to give, to actually take this hardened, petrified piece of manure that has killed your field, what do I do with that? You go into Christ, you take this meadow into Christ, you know what he does? He softens that up. I don't know how he does it. It's just a work of grace. He softens up this petrified piece of manure that has killed your soil for so many years. And he says, let's till that together. Let's turn this into a sacred garden. See, it's not too late, ever. You see, the principle of judgment is as long as, remember the ark in Noah's day? As long as the rain hasn't started, the ark door is still open, you have opportunity to gain the merits of that ark. It's open to you. Same with Jesus. Door open. All the merits of what's inside Jesus are available to every single one of us. I know we've spent a whole few months or years of our life traipsing around outside the ark going, oh, you know, what am I going to do about this dead space in my meadow? Get into Christ, and he has all that is necessary to take that petrified, hard manure and make it something that will fertilize that territory and make it beautiful. How God does this? He's just good at it. It's just what he does. He brings life. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the thief does. That's what Jesus said. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that more abundant. What's our Jesus up to? He's up to life. That's what he brings. What does he want to bring in your meadow? Life. So if there's death, it didn't come from him. He's not the one dumping the manure, by the way. He's not the one whispering to someone, going, yeah, could you dump manure over there? That's not God. That's Satan. Satan wants to dump manure all over your property. However, what the enemy means for evil, God will turn the enemy's manure into a more lush meadow. Who wins? God. At every turn, no matter what the enemy does, if we handle it the way God has trained us to handle it, we rejoice no matter what it comes. If it comes from the enemy, if it comes from God, God tests us, he prunes us. You know, there's difficulties that can come from God too, and guess what? All of it brings about a greater richness and lushness to our meadow. All of it. When God is at the center and we handle things God's way, beauty arises, even out of ashes. He's God. That's what he does. Power to do the impossible. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Um, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Not building shrines of manure, not allowing little patches of manure to petrify and kill the ground underneath and just have dead soil. We're supposed to be doing this. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. That's a prayer garden. It's lush. And the world can't figure us out. They throw us in prison, and what do we start doing? Singing songs. Wait a minute, prison is supposed to be dark. It's a whole bunch of manure down there. Oh, that manure is going to make me more lush than ever. Praise God, this is exciting. They're like, what is wrong with this guy? What was Richard Wormbrandt's statement? He made a deal with the guards. Do you guys remember that line? He made a deal with the guards. I preach, he said, and they beat me. That way we're both happy. (laughs) He preaches, 
They beat him. They're happy. He's happy. We have a good arrangement here. That's a Christian. We preach. The world beats us. And what happens? We grow stronger. See, the enemy can't stop the unstoppable train known as Christianity. It's going to accomplish what Jesus Christ intends to accomplish in this earth. And no matter matter what it tries to do to stop us, it only makes us stronger. That's when you start to get a little glint in your eye, a smirk on your face, and a little leap for joy in your feet. When you recognize the enemy can't stop this train. You become an instrument of forgiveness. And I tell you what, beauty will begin to burgeon forth in your life. We all need this message at some level, okay? And I'm not going to try and excuse myself from the significance of this message, sort of like I've figured this out. This is something that I was not discipled in. This is something I've had to learn the hard way, and I've had to be groomed by the Spirit of God to understand the difference between human forgiveness and divine forgiveness, because I functioned with a certain nobility and an honor of human forgiveness. I will forgive them. And it was honorable. It was the right thing to do. But then when I just called it what it was, it was Eric's attempt. It was Eric's doing. And it has no divine quality to it, no true redemptive quality. There's no growth in life that's coming out of it. There's a deadness and a blankness in me. I'm not going to boast in that. What you did, Jesus, is what I want, but I don't know how to do that. Could you do it in me? The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. I'm not exactly sure how to properly conclude this, because this is an action message. This is one of those messages that if you hear and you do not apply, is actually more dangerous for you than just not hearing it. Truth is meant to be applied. You cannot just be a hearer. You must be a doer. Otherwise, what you're hearing actually can hurt you in a strange way because it inoculates you. You can say, oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, sure, I know that. As if the knowing of it is the actual working of it in your life. I use the illustration a lot of a $20 bill sitting on the stage here, and I say, that's yours. It belongs to you. And then you know that I gave you a 20. You can tell others, yeah, it's true, Eric gave me a 20. But if you didn't come up here and grab the 20, you don't have the 20 crinkling between your fingers. What's the good of knowing about a 20? When it comes to the test out there of $19, if you don't have the 20, you don't have what you need. And then you start to blame God on the fact that, hey, your promises don't work. You never picked up the 20. You must apply that which you know. When you know to do something, you must do it. There's some of you that need to make phone calls. There's some of you that need to write letters, maybe. Email is somewhat of a trick. Don't text it and Twitter it, okay? I forgive you. Uh, I don't want you to just offer forgiveness to others either. I want you to seek the low place. The way I would say it is, what they did to you might have been a pile of manure. However, you threw a little clod of it, sort of like a manure snowball, back at them. And it was only one. Come on, it was hardly anything in return. They dumped a whole pile. You only threw one little manure ball. I need a name for these things. That's all you did? You're innocent, Comparatively, you're responsible for your one little manure ball. And you make that right. Look, uh, five years ago, I, I did something that I'm, I'm ashamed of. I've been, Jesus has just been working on me. And I just, I want you to know that what I did was wrong when I said this to you, when I did this to you, when I acted this way, it was wrong. And I want to seek your forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is not something that you declare. It's actually something you ask. Will you forgive me? What it does is it puts the ownership on the decision with someone else. If they don't forgive you, guess what? You've still done what you needed to do. It's their responsibility to forgive. But you make an opportunity available. Very likely they will say, well, yeah, I guess, sure, it's fine. That's the typical response that you'll get. Sometimes you'll get spat at in the face. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to be right in your own soul. If you have been a manure dumper, you make that right. And if there's someone that has dumped manure on your property, you forgive them in the person of Christ. This is what it might sound like. Jesus, I agree with you. And I agree that you forgave me and you've forgiven them. So I stand in agreement in the truth of Jesus Christ. And I agree with you and I say, I forgive them in you. And I choose to be a conduit, a flow-through channel of blessing. And I pray a blessing upon them today. And I pray that you would remind me of them often. And that every time they come to mind, I would pray for them a blessing. And that you would give me your heart for them. That I would have love within me for them. And I would not just have a blankness. Save me from the blankness. May I care for them truly. Please break my heart over them. And turn what the enemy is meant to destroy me into dead ground. And turn it into a prayer garden for them and for others like them. May I always remember your forgiveness of me. And may I be always ready to give the forgiveness to others. Remember that statement that says, when life gives you lemons, uh, make lemonade? I don't know what it would translate into. When, when the enemy brings manure, turn it into a prayer garden. That's the principle that we're talking about. It's taking something that otherwise would be lemony, sour, and making it something beautiful. And that's God's way. Each one of us is responsible for our own soul. I can't guess what is going on inside of you, but I know that it's impossible to get near this territory without us having to seriously evaluate. If you've had things in your life where you're like, have I forgiven? It's okay. You, it's possible that you have, and you've even done it right and in Christ. It doesn't mean that just because we're talking about this and you didn't fully understand this that you haven't forgiven correctly. God is a gracious God. We've done a lot of things correctly without knowing exactly what we're doing. You may have forgiven correctly up to this point, and I just, it's safe to always come before God and say, God, is there anything in me that needs to be corrected? And to even say, I just want to make it clear. I do forgive them in the person of Christ. And then pray a blessing over them. It's still a wonderful idea to till that soil and sit in the park bench there, build a little water feature, and enjoy the, you know, the chatter of birds as you sit there and pray for them. Allow the beauty to begin to cascade forth. Because some of us, it might be that we actually tilled it, but we never you know, built the bench and the water feature there and made it a spot of remembrance of God's grace in our life. Build a spot of remembrance. Put down a little bench with a bronze plaque on it and remember what Jesus has done. Well, I hope that was an encouragement for you. And I highly, highly encourage you to not just listen to this and say, wow, that was a great message, but to practically apply this into your life. Whether it be because someone came in and dumped a whole bunch of manure into your life or whether because you dumped manure into someone else's life, would you allow the power of God to come into your life and extend forgiveness through you? Hey, would you take that hard, that, I mean, it's so difficult, but would you take the courage of the Lord to go to someone and say, hey, I need to ask for your forgiveness or, hey, look, I know you did something to me, but I just want to say, I forgive you. So don't let this just be merely a a message of information. Let this message transform you practically for how you live your life. 
Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 110 for episode 110. Now, next time we're going to take this one step further and talk not just about forgiveness, but about reconciliation. So until then, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.